The Guardian. Multiple sclerosis, or MS, is a condition affecting the nerves in the brain and the spinal cord that can lead to a wide range of possible symptoms, including problems with mobility, vision and cognition, as well as general fatigue. Over 100,000 people have been diagnosed with MS here in the UK, with around 2.5 million cases worldwide. But its distribution around the world is uneven, increasing as you travel north or south away from the equator, hinting at the role our environment can play and it's nearly three times more common in women than men. And whilst current treatments are largely limited to the management of symptoms, exciting new avenues are opening up, including some that scientists have uncovered thanks to the frozen brains of people who died with MS. If you want to understand what is damaging the brain in MS, you've actually got to study the brains that are damaged by MS. So a very detailed description of, of the brain that's damaged by MS and understanding of the molecules that might be causing that damage is what then leads you on to choose a drug target. I'm Ian Sample and you're listening to Science Weekly from The Guardian. Tell you what you'll do first, we'll go to the Tissue Bank office just because that's kind of where it all starts. Okay. okay, so in here. Professor Richard Reynolds is a cellular neurobiologist at Imperial College London who's been looking at MS for over 30 years. He's also the scientific director at the MS Society Tissue Bank, which is where I went to meet him. Some people sign up, they give consent. The centre is a national collection of central nervous system tissue samples donated by individuals with MS, Parkinson's disease and related neurological conditions. So this is the kind of nerve centre in here, so... The tissue bank makes high-quality human material, primarily brains, available to the research community engaged in discovering the causes and progression of conditions like MS and Parkinson's, in the hope that more effective treatments may be developed. I went down to have a little look around the lab with Richard. We call it a brain bucket, actually, and it's called that in pathology labs as well. When you open that box, does that still seem quite an odd thing to be handling? Yes, it does, actually. Um, when a brain is, is fresh, you, you do get that thought immediately that this brain was thinking, working, you know, a few hours ago. And it was the, the centre of that person who was controlling everything that person did. Um, so it is quite, it's, it's a slightly emotional feeling to, to be handling that kind of fresh brain. Knowing that some of those cells you could take out and you could grow them because they're live, they're no longer talking to each other because there's no oxygen, no blood supply, but they're not totally dead. And it doesn't lose its sort of extraordinary power, the fact that you are handling the entire nervous system, central nervous system of another person who hasn't died that long ago. No, it's, it, it's fascinating, it really is fascinating, and the complexity of the brain is just so incredible that there's a sense of awe, really, yeah. working with it, these brains. We'll hear more from the labs at the tissue bank throughout the podcast. Back in his office, I wanted to ask Richard Reynolds about how he started researching MS. My first job, or my PhD actually, it was looking at brain development. So we were trying to understand particular processes in how neurons developed in the developing brain. When I finished that, I moved to Switzerland. It was in the Thatcher years when there weren't many jobs and she said, go wherever the the jobs were. So uh, uh, we ended up in Switzerland, my wife and I, and uh, my first job was working in a children's hospital 
in Bern, where the uh, professor there was interested in diseases of the brain in children that affect myelin sheaths. So as our nerve fibers develop during early development of the brain in children, to begin with, they, they're bare. They don't have any insulation at all. But as they develop and they're required to send electrical signals more quickly, they develop this uh, wrapping around them called the myelin sheath, which is an insulating sheath around those nerve fibers. So the group that I was working with to begin with was studying genetic diseases in which those fatty sheaths didn't form properly. And that leads to severe disability of a child and is not compatible with life after about 10 years of age. So that was my first encounter with the myelin sheath. And of course, it's the myelin sheath that is primarily damaged by the immune response in multiple sclerosis. So by the end of that first job, I was getting more and more interested in multiple sclerosis, i.e. a condition of the adult in which that substance I'd been studying in children is being damaged by the immune system. So that's when my first encounter with MS occurred. And after five years in Switzerland, I came back to Imperial College London where I um, started research on what is causing demyelination, loss of the myelin sheaths in MS. What was known about the disease back then in the early 80s? Well, it was known that it was a disease involving the immune system, that the immune system was attacking the brain in some way, and that was what was causing these attacks. It was at that kind of time that they first started developing brain scanning, so they could see in a patient that something was not right in the brain. But there were no treatments at all. So at that stage, a neurologist would probably say, yes, you, I think you've got multiple sclerosis, but I'm afraid there's not a lot we can do to help you. I don't think we understood much about how the immune system was damaging the brain. We knew that it was something to do with the myelin sheath, that the myelin sheaths were being stripped off by cells of the immune system. But we didn't know much about the triggers and the cells involved and the molecules that are involved in that process. You know, everyone is fascinated to see a brain. Basically. I'm quite overwhelmed to see that. That's the first so, brain I've seen. This is a brain. A skull. Uh, it was a control, i.e. someone who didn't have any neurological disorder. It's, uh, it's been preserved in a chemical that kind of preserves the structure of it. So it's quite firm if you see there. But if that came in fresh, it would be best way to describe it is squishy basically mm, it would, mm. it's quite is it loose delicate or is it quite delicate. tough okay. very delicate indeed and that's why we need the skull around it of course i don't want to be too brain centric about personality and existence as well but it's quite amazing to think that pretty much all we are fits into that volume yes that determines who we are I always say to our students, this is the most complex thing known to man on the, in the universe, mm. basically. The yeah. whole of the brain is effectively duplicated from right to left, even this bit, which is the, it's called the cerebellum, which is the small brain. Right. And that's got two sides as well. And most of the brain is, is like that. So is it possible to say which part of the brain is affected by MS or is it all over? In MS, it's all over. Let's come to the modern day. How has our understanding of MS changed? How is it different today than it was back in those early years, the early 80s? 
we understand an awful lot more about how the immune system works to start with. Um, back then, we probably thought there were two types of white blood cell, a T cell and a B cell. And now we know there's about 56 different types of T cells and probably about 12 different types of B cells, all having slightly different functions. So we've learned to understand which cell types do exactly what in the immune system. And therefore, we're beginning to understand more and more about which one of those subtypes of cells is causing the damage in MS. So that's the immune system. Of course, with all the latest technologies, we're beginning to understand a lot more about brain structure and function as well. And particularly about the genes involved and the proteins, the molecules involved in how parts of the nervous system form in the first place, but also how they're damaged and how we can manipulate those processes. What sort of technologies have been really pushing this on? It's not just been the scanning, I presume. No, it's the, it's the ability to, for example, sequence the DNA, for example, in 10,000 people within the space of two days, that kind of technology, and then develop complex computer algorithms to unravel that data so that we can now say, ah, that group of people have a variation in that gene that might lead to something. And then we can take all of the proteins out of a bit of tissue. We can separate them all, all the proteins, and say there's an increase in that one, a decrease in that one. And these are things which would have taken years to do that we can now do in one or two days now we have the problem of trying to understand what all that information means and we need the computing power increasingly to help us do that. And what can we say now about what the causes of MS are? Are we any further ahead with understanding that root cause of this disease? I think we are closer to understanding the root cause. I, I don't think we've got our finger on it exactly yet. But we now know that there's a basic genetic susceptibility to develop MS. And we know that there are large numbers of genes, and the latest count was probably just below the 200 mark of genes that have small influences on our susceptibility to get MS. So we now know that if you've got variants of, say, 10 of those genes that were really important, you've increased your susceptibility to have MS. That doesn't mean you're going to get MS. We now know there's a link with vitamin D levels in some way, which is linked to sunlight, such that if your vitamin D levels are low, that increases your susceptibility to MS yet again. And this is why you see more in Scotland than in southern More in areas? Scotland and more in southern Australia than northern Australia, etc. That gradient exists on both sides of the, of the world. I'm sure there are dietary influences because there's populations such as the Inuits that live in the cold climates with less exposure to sun and they don't seem to have MS at all in their populations. So there must be other factors which might be diet, for example, or healthier lifestyles that actually adjust that susceptibility. One of the theories about the trigger also involves viruses and uh, the latest idea is that Epstein-Barr virus, which is what causes glandular fever, may be playing a role. Now, we all tend to be infected with Epstein-Barr virus when we're young, but we don't all get a related disease because of it. We don't all get that full-blown glandular fever. And it's been suggested that in people who get that full-blown disease, 
at a later stage of their teenage years or into their early 20s, if they've got the genetic susceptibility to get MS, low vitamin D levels, it just all adds up and possibly eventually causes the MS. But we still don't actually know that root cause. And even if you know that root cause, it's not necessarily easy to stop. So it is a bit like if you were to slice a cauliflower and we all think of brains as looking like cauliflowers. It is a bit like that, but it's not so white. It's got these pinkish, brownish bits. The colour's a bit, to me, like a pork chop, to be honest, with some of the sort of white areas that you can get on them. Um, and a little bit more bumpy and curvy. So this is a kind of slice about through the middle of the brain here. And if you can see, the area in the centre is a more whitey colour, and that's called our white matter. Yep. And that's basically where all the wiring is. Yep. So all the nerve fibres are in that space. Mm -hmm. The reason it's white, and this is really important for MS, is that those nerve fibres have an insulating layer wrapped around them. It's called the myelin sheath, and it's basically a fatty layer that's made by another cell in the brain to insulate those nerve fibres right. so that they can conduct their electrical impulse really fast. So without the myelin, are they not able to send signals? I mean, is it like plastic coating around electrical wiring? Or? Either the signals will instead go very slow or it leaks out so that it doesn't get to where it's meant to be going effectively. So that's effectively what happens in MS. Areas of those nerve fibres are damaged, the myelin sheath is stripped off and therefore all the signals going through that area either go incorrectly or they get blocked completely. Now you can see this. This is a relatively severely affected brain, but if you see this area here which is discoloured and not like the surrounding white matter, that's where those myelin shears have been stripped off and it's going all through up there. The, all this grey area yes, here? Yes, all mean? this grey area and it goes up there as well and both yeah. sides. And does this actually destroy nerves here or is it just they just discolour and they lose the myelin but they are still there? So the first thing it seems to happen is that, yes, they lose the myelin, but then the nerve fibres themselves can be damaged as well. Mm. There's, an, there's another area here, and you can mm. see there's a you know, little area there where it's been damaged, mm. and a bigger area there. It can happen basically anywhere. Mm. And yes, the nerve fibres themselves can get damaged and lost with time as well. And the other thing that happens, which is really something that's been revealed in the last 10 years, from studying these brains is that the nerve cells themselves are lost. So MS is quite complex in that sense. You're losing multiple components of the brain at different times in different places. This complexity is now starting to be understood a little better thanks to tissue banks like the one Richard showed me around. And importantly, with these new insights come potential new treatments. Something we'll hear more about after this short break. I'm Emma John, and I'm sorry. I lied to you. It's the spin! I said we'd be happy if England won the World Cup, but lost the Ashes. It's not true. I want it all. I know it's greedy, but positioning the urn next to the World Cup on Ben Stokes' mantelpiece would make this the ultimate summer for English cricket. So join us on the spin as we turn ourselves into emotional wrecks all over again. It couldn't be as nerve-wracking as the World Cup final. Could it? It's The Spin! The Spin is supported by NatWest. 
Welcome back to Science Weekly. Before the break, we had a walk around the MS Tissue Bank in London, where patients with MS can donate their brains for research. Some of it is slices that are then put into chemical preservatives. My guide for the day was Professor Richard Reynolds, who I sat down with in his office. You've talked about the effect on myelin, but standing back, what is it really doing to the brain, this disease? So it's disrupting the electrical signaling throughout the brain. And because the damage in the brain in MS is not in any one place, it's in multiple places, and those places are different in one patient to another patient, it's causing lots of different neurological symptoms, which are different from patient to patient, because the damage that occurs is just slowing down those electrical signals, or it's stopping them all together. So you lose sensation in part of your skin, for example, because those signals are not getting transmitted up the spinal cord to the brain properly, an example. Or you can't move your hand because the motor centers in the brain or part of the spinal cord is damaged that transmits those electrical signals down. So it's, it's basically changing the pathways of electrical signals and the speed of those electrical signals in the brain and spinal cord. And it's also killing off cells, right? So yes, the immune cells that are attacking the myelin sheath also kill the cells called oligodendrocytes that make that myelin sheath. There's also good evidence that it's killing off some of the neurons in the gray matter in our brain as well. We don't know whether that's in a specific way that they're being targeted, and we think probably not. It's kind of a non-specific result of having immune cells trapped in the brain which are looking for something and they're releasing molecules which just happen to be toxic to the neurons so it's a kind of bystander effect but the neurons themselves are not being directly targeted. Does the disease tend to progress in a predictable way? Are there known paths that this disease progresses along? I think it'd be wrong to say it's predictable So when MS starts, the first thing that a patient experiences is be an acute attack of neurological dysfunction. So that's called a relapse. And it can have different symptoms depending where the damage is in the brain. And the patient will tend to recover from that relapse. And that's due to the immune system attack being turned off and also repair processes going on. And then they may be fine for a number of years or less than a year and have another attack. And those attacks continue perhaps for the first 10 years, but in some people it might just be two years, some people it might be 20 years, so it's quite variable. And then eventually the number of attacks decreases and the majority of people, but not all people, enter what is called a secondary progressive phase. And that means that they're building up a level of disability slowly over time, but they're no longer having those acute attacks. So it's progressing, it's getting slowly worse with time. The rate at which it gets worse with time can vary from person to person. And the severity of the disability can vary a lot from person to person. And not everyone does enter the secondary progression. So it's impossible to predict effectively when someone has relapsing remitting MS, how quickly their MS is going to develop and whether they're going to develop disability in the long term because they won't all. So... I think an important area of research is trying to be able to predict in an individual person how rapidly 
their MS is going to develop. And that would be really useful and allow you to use the right drugs at the right time. So what do you think is going on in the brain or the central nervous system that shifts you from this relapsing, remitting phase where there is some recovery to this stage where it's steadily getting worse? The latest ideas suggest that as immune cells enter the brain during the early stages of MS, during the relapses, some of those cells become trapped in the brain. And over time, they divide, they build up. And so we think that it's that build-up of immune cells within the brain creating damage that leads to this slow build-up that we call progression. Now, that probably starts quite early on, but our brain has an amazing capacity to deal with damage and has an extra capacity that allows us to lose certain number of cells, nerve fibers, before we actually see an effect. Therefore, that progression only becomes apparent later on when you've lost a certain proportion of the myelin sheaths, the nerve fibers, the nerve cells themselves. So these immune cells are getting caught in the brain after they first enter and cause damage. And so they stay there, they're replicating, they continue to do damage. Yes, that's right. And uh, they build up around blood vessels in the brain, but also they build up in the tissues that surround the brain called the meninges. And those are the tissues that separate the cerebral spinal fluid from the brain itself. Those cells build up in that area in quite large numbers. In particular, there's a large increase in B lymphocytes in those areas. And these are the cells that give rise to antibody-producing cells that our immune system uses as our immunological memory. But how is that build-up of B lymphocytes in the meninges, say, causing damage to the brain? What is it actually doing that's going to affect anyone's function if they've got MS? So we know that those B cells can make a number of molecules that are actually toxic to cells in the brain itself. So if you've got a build-up of these B lymphocytes around overlying the grey matter in the brain and they are pumping out a number of toxic molecules which build up in concentration slowly over time. They appear to be seeping into the underlying brain effectively mm. and both directly damaging some of the cells underneath but also indirectly affecting them. So they are activating other cells in the brain which will then go on to make molecules that will kill neurons in the brain. So it's this accumulative effect but it's happening slowly over time. So it explains quite well that slow build-up of disability to develop. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. It's a kind of slowly accumulating damage that occurs. So is that the only way that MS progresses? Well, no. About 10 to 15% of people diagnosed with MS don't actually have these relapses. So they develop this build-up of disability right from the start. It develops slowly in the same way as secondary progressive, so we call this primary progressive MS. It's more difficult to diagnose because you don't have those initial attacks, but it then develops in a similar way to secondary progressive MS. Next, we headed back into the lab, and Richard put some of the immune cells under the microscope. Let's have a look. So, what we've got here is a, a one of those thin slices of brain tissue yep okay and if you look on the screen here you can see that there's a lot of small cells there that are brown color 
they are basically the lymphocytes. Okay, so what has happened here is that something in the brain, which is this space around here, has indicated to the immune system that the immune cells should come in and attack something. And the lymphocytes are these immune That's cells right. that have come up into the brain. That's right. And these brown ones here, these are called T lymphocytes. They're designed to detect infectious particles, bacteria, viruses, etc., things going wrong, and then signal to other cells to come and remove them. And as you'll see, they've accumulated here in this slice of MS brain. This is the normal brain. This is a blood vessel. And these cells have actually come out of that blood vessel and they've accumulated in this area. And the attacks that people have at the early stages of MS are caused by a very rapid influx of these cells from the immune system into the brain itself. That then strips off those myelin insulating sheaths and you get symptoms in that, that result from damage in that area of the brain. But are they recognizing something on the myelin that looks like a virus they've encountered before or they've been misprogrammed in some way to make them suddenly see myelin as foreign material or what have you? Yes, I mean the idea is they've been they've now been programmed to see something on that myelin sheath as being foreign. This is what we call an autoimmune condition. Our immune system is attacking something which it shouldn't consider to be foreign. What that actual protein is we still are not sure. It doesn't actually have to be exactly the same in every person. It's possible that that protein that's being attacked by these cells has the same structure as a protein on a virus for example. We call this molecular mimicry i.e. The, the protein in the virus is mimicking the protein in the myelin sheath and mm. therefore the immune system thinks it's attacking the virus but instead it's attacking the myelin sheath. So those cells shouldn't be there effectively, they've come out. Now, because this brain is from someone who had progressive MS, the later stages and not the early stages, we're seeing something slightly different here in that now those cells are trapped in the brain space. They no longer have to come out of the blood. And that's why later on in MS, people don't have those acute attacks. Okay? They just have a slow buildup of disability. Do these continue to do damage? Are they still active? Yes, they're still doing damage. They're maintaining themselves, they can divide, keep releasing things that are damaging to the, the brain mm -hmm. tissue. So this almost looks like a picture of the sort of the sea from above the clouds. Where are we with treatments today? What can we do for people with MS at these different stages as well of MS? Uh, the development of drugs for the early stages of MS, relapsing remitting MS, has been a real success story. So. When I first started working on MS, there were no therapies, and now we have something in the region of 12 to 15 therapies that are effective in relapsing remitting MS. All of these therapies target the immune system in some way before it gets into the brain. So they will either remove a particular cell type of the immune system that's doing the damage, or they'll stop an immune cell, for example, a T lymphocyte, getting into the brain, or they'll try and modulate its function so that it's not a, a damaging immune cell, for example. It's one that will switch the immune response off. Mm -hmm. So they're basically all targeting that early immune attack on the brain. As yet, we don't have many options for treating progressive MS, probably because now the targets that we need to look for for developing drugs are different. 
we're not now trying to stop the cells getting into the brain. We're trying to deal with what happens now that they're already in there and they're killing off nerve cells or damaging myelin sheaths. So now we need to look for different molecules as drug targets. The first therapy that's really proved to be successful in progressive MS has just been given a license this year. And that actually works by killing off B lymphocytes, the cells that we were talking about that accumulate in the meninges and can damage the underlying brain. Those B lymphocytes also have effects in the peripheral immune system when they're circulating in the blood as well. So it's thought that this drug possibly acts by both removing them from the peripheral immune system and also having some effects on them when they're actually in the brain itself. Is that not quite a dangerous thing to do, to wipe out an entire population of immune cells in the body? It's not without its problems. And that, I guess, is where we are with the kind of immune modulatory therapies at the moment. They are removing parts of the immune system that we tend to need from time to time to combat infection. So behind those first lot of drugs are coming more specific ones that don't knock out the whole of a cell population. They try and change their function a bit or knock out a small number of subtypes of the cells. So therapies are becoming more sophisticated in that sense in order to remove those side effects that you mentioned by you know, wiping out a whole mm. cell type of the immune system. So what are the hopes then of either preventing this progressive stage or stalling it or who knows, maybe even reversing it, dare we say the word cure? I think the development of new drug targets for progressive MS is moving very fast in actual fact. So I think we're in the situation where a lot of the basic research has been done over the last couple of decades. And now we're at the stage of identifying those drug targets and then finding drugs, molecules, either existing ones or making new ones that can target those processes. And I think it's generally thought in the field that we're in a very good place at this point in time. There's going to be a rapid development now of new drugs that target these later stages of MS because we've done all the basic research over the last 20 plus years. So there, there's more hope than I've ever seen, actually, having worked on MS for over 30 years. Everyone is much more positive now about drugs that can actually significantly slow down or even possibly halt that progression. Then we can talk about drugs that stimulate regeneration, you know, replacement of those lost functions that have gone. But how soon do you think MS patients are going to see a meaningful difference from the kinds of drugs that are in trials now that will hopefully be going into trials in the coming few years? So there's quite a number of new drugs in trial at the moment for progressive MS in the late stage, the phase three trials. Those trials are likely to take, say, another three years before they finish. They work out the numbers, whether it's really producing a benefit. During that time, there'll be new drugs going into trial in progressive MS. And so I think we're looking at five years. We could expect there to be a number of drugs now being licensed on the market that make a significant difference uh, for people with progressive MS. And then we have effectively stopped the effects of MS. So it will have been stopped in its tracks. Then we need to go and think about, can we stop it right at the beginning, which is another question. 
We're here today at the MS Society Tissue Bank. How important have places like this been in improving understanding of the disease and getting the drug targets, the mechanisms understood to develop those drugs to try and make a difference? So yes, the tissue banks are a crucial part of the infrastructure allows that research to be done. So if you want to understand what is damaging the brain in MS, you've actually got to study the brains that are damaged by MS. So a very detailed description of, of the brain that's damaged by MS and understanding of the molecules that might be causing that damage is what then leads you on to choose a drug target. And when you've chosen that drug target, you can use other systems to test that drug, but you can't find it in the first place without studying that very tissue that, that MS damages. So a brain bank or a tissue bank like the one here at Imperial College has been vital to that effort to identify processes causing the damage, new drug targets, etc. Even new methods to be used for diagnosing MS have come from use of the tissue. We've walked around this tissue bank. You've shown us what you do with the tissue and you've described how huge an impact that makes on understanding of, of multiple sclerosis. How do you feel about those people then who, who make that decision to donate their brains, their spinal cord tissue? It clearly wouldn't be possible to, to do this research if people were not prepared to take that important vital step and give consent to donate their brain to research. So we, we count this as a, a really precious, vital gift, a lasting gift for research, and therefore the donors are taking a an important step and we certainly encourage more people to become involved in, in tissue donation in this way just to increase the number of brains available for research around the world. That was Professor Richard Reynolds talking to me at the MS Society Tissue Bank in London. And actually it was a very humbling experience to be there, not only to see a brain and the fact that that person had chosen to donate their brain after their death so that it would further research, but also the power of science really came across to me. You get to see what they look at in the brain, how those brains really do help, not only identify what's happening in the disease on multiple fronts, but how it then leads them to find ways of stopping that happening. And the idea that that knowledge might help transform the lives of some of these people with the disease was utterly awe-inspiring for me. A big thanks to Richard and to the MS Society for allowing us to visit the labs. And you can find out more about their work on the episode page of the podcast. But for now, until next time, goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.